Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, we're focusing on the most serious subject imaginable, the possibility that humankind might cease to exist. My guest is Toby Ord of Oxford University's Future of Humanity Institute. He's a philosopher and former computer scientist who recently published a fascinating book called The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity. He puts the risk that humanity might be wiped out in the coming century at one in six. According to Toby Ord, a defining feature of modern times is that for the first time in humanity's long history, we have the capacity to destroy ourselves. The all-shattering devastation in which was born the atomic age. In its birth pangs, 75,000 people were killed. The use of nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945 heralded the atomic age, and with it, the realisation that humanity had created tools that could bring about our own self-destruction. Since then, of course, nuclear weapons have become hugely more numerous and powerful. More recently, with the outbreak of COVID-19, we've been reminded of the threat of killer diseases. We're all in this together, and we can only stop it together. This is the time for facts, not fear. That was the director of the World Health Organization, Tedros Ghebreyesus. But, as some experts have reminded us, the current pandemic may be just a warning. Imagine a future disease which has a much higher mortality rate than the current coronavirus and which spreads even more easily. Toby Ord's book, which was written before the coronavirus outbreak, draws upon the work of many of his colleagues specialising in different disciplines at Oxford and elsewhere. It contains a detailed assessment of the risk of pandemics. But, as I discovered when reading the book, while Dr. Ord takes pandemics, nuclear weapons and climate change very seriously, the existential dangers that most worry him are biological weapons and artificial intelligence. Success in creating effective AI could be the biggest event in the history of our civilization, or the worst. The risks posed by AI have worried many great minds. Here's the late Stephen Hawking, talking in 2017. We just don't know. So we cannot know if we will be infinitely helped by AI, or ignored by it, and sidelined, or conceivably destroyed by it. All of these concerns must make the precipice sound like a deeply depressing read. But as you'll hear, Toby Ord insists that he's actually an optimist about the future of humanity. When I got him on the line from Oxford recently, I started by asking him what he actually meant by existential risk. So my focus in the precipice is on risks that could pose a threat to humanity's entire future. And I argue that that's a very important category of risks called existential risks. These could be risks of human extinction, 
or something else from which there's no recovery. For example, if there was a collapse of civilization so severe that there was no possible way back, or perhaps even some kind of dictatorship from which we can never escape. Anything like that that would be the final end to humanity's potential. These risks have this special importance because they would destroy not just our present, but our entire future. And where humanity would have to get through our entire future without ever once falling victim to such a risk. So we can't learn from trial and error. So they have these very special properties. And when it comes to risks of that scale, natural pandemics have difficulty reaching that, thankfully. There tends to be the case that when a pandemic affects people, it doesn't affect everyone, and it's not 100% lethal. Because pandemics like that, you know, it's bad for the pathogen itself to kill off all of its hosts. It can and has happened in various species. We know that, that this is possible. But there's at least some kind of reassurance we have. And also just from the historical or fossil record, that we know that we've survived 200,000 years so far without falling victim to a natural pandemic. But the track record of time with genetic engineering is much shorter. And as the techniques of synthetic biology and biotechnology more generally, as, as they develop so quickly and the technologies get democratized so quickly, you know, with the price of sequencing uh, DNA falling by a factor of a thousand in the last two decades, and uh, the price of synthesizing DNA, you know, creating DNA to order falling rapidly as well. These techniques are getting to the hands of more and more people, making it easier and easier for nations to pursue bioweapons programs or for small terrorist groups to pursue them as well. And they might also be able to design bioweapons that have a combination of properties that could really be lethal to everyone. Is there any evidence of this kind of thing? I mean, any, any kind of warnings? I think you mentioned the Om Shinrikyo sarin gas attack in Tokyo a few years back. Yeah, what's particularly fascinating about that was that they were a cult that had an express interest in destroying all of humanity. Um, so they had this very rare, thankfully rare, desire to destroy everyone. This is sometimes also uh, talked about within extreme environmentalist groups who think that the world would be better with no humanity. And there are various possibilities of individuals also having these views, and this has been noted. Normally, very few people do. And so the issue is when the technologies get easier and easier to implement, such that the pool of people who could create a deadly virus gets large enough to include people like this. Are governments working on stuff like this? Yeah, there, there indeed is generally large budgets to deal with bioterrorism, but it's often focused at smaller events. So for example, Aum Shinrikyo, as well as the sarin nerve gas, they tried to do an anthrax attack, which didn't work, thankfully. But they did have scientists involved in their small bioweapons program. And if they were doing it today, they could probably have done a lot more damage. But something like anthrax is never going to kill everyone. And so a lot of the focus is on these smaller events. And it's important to note that I'm really thinking about the very largest scale. And that's not necessarily the one you should be most worried about, but it's the one that humanity as a whole should be most worried about. So if this went wrong, is it a terrorist group that most worries you? Or is it the kind of lab escapes where governments might actually be working on dangerous bioweapons themselves that break out? Is that also a concern? Yeah, I try to divide these pandemic threats into three categories. There's the so-called natural pandemics, where they are exacerbated perhaps by human agriculture or human interactions with wild forests, getting more into contact with diseases that we hadn't been in contact with before. But 
by and large, uh, they're an entirely natural pathogen. Then there are cases where well-meaning scientists doing research on pathogens and trying to do what's called gain-of-function research, where they try to make the pathogen either more transmissible or more deadly. This type of research was done with bird flu in an attempt to find out how many mutations were needed and how close it was from being able to be transmissible between mammals. It was highly lethal, but you could only catch it from a bird. And this research was done by Ron Fouchier, and he managed to create a strain of it that could be transmitted directly between mammals. So people do research like this and create pathogens that are perhaps the, the most scary things, you know, scarier than anything in the natural world. And they do it within labs that have pretty good biosafety. They take a lot of precautions, and it's quite difficult for things to escape. And yet, they do sometimes escape. Uh, so not many people are aware that after the extremely bad foot-and-mouth outbreak in the UK, where millions of livestock had to be burned, uh, there was a smaller outbreak that happened more recently. And that one came out of the Purbright lab, which was the highest level of biosecurity in the whole world. And in fact, the only known time that there has been an escape from a BSL-4 lab was in the UK. And in fact, the license of the lab was renewed after it caused the most recent outbreak. And then it escaped again almost immediately after and uh, had to be closed down again. And then the license was renewed once more. So this isn't just something where we might think that people in other countries where they have lower standards could have these things escape. It's happened here. And in fact, the last smallpox death was also in the UK, escaping from a lab working on smallpox. So that's a kind of second category of well-meaning people not designing bioweapons, but trying to understand the pathogens and doing so in a world where even the most secure labs are liable to escape due to bad luck or something like that. Then there are the cases of actual military or terrorist groups deliberately designing bioweapons. And probably I would say that of all of these, they're in an increasing level of danger and that the deliberately designed bioweapons from either states or non-state actors are indeed the most worrying. Okay, well, turning to AI, which, if I recall correctly, you rank as equal as a threat to bioweapons, as the two highest threats, I think. Give us a sense. I mean, people working in the field of artificial intelligence, how worried are they about the potential of the stuff that they themselves are working on? That's a good question. There's actually a lot of disagreement about this. And it partly comes down to what they see their field as doing and over what time frame they're thinking. The original aims of the field of artificial intelligence were to uh, create thinking machines that would be able to do all the kinds of things that a human can do. Over time, their sights were lowered a bit to thinking of it more as precise statistical methods for doing a particular cognitive task, such that you have a system, for example, that can recognize uh, cats in a photograph. That system is never going to be a threat to humanity. And to the extent to which things are kept narrow, the danger would always be of misuse, not of the system itself creating the problem. But the original aims are actually getting a bit closer to fruition with this idea of artificial general intelligence, creating a system more like an organism, a human or, or an animal, that can go about interacting in the world to fulfill its goals. And these systems are getting closer, but we don't know when we'll actually be able to do it. There was a recent survey which found that the median estimate, so the typical estimate, for when we would be able to have an AI system that does all human tasks was in 2061. But very wide disagreement. That was the most common answer, but many answers that were much shorter or much longer time frame as well. 
and a lot of concern even among these top AI researchers who were surveyed about the possibility that it could cause a extremely bad outcome when it is created. By extremely bad outcome, as I understand it, what you're saying is that these machines, you know, maybe in the popular imagination, typically robots, but but they needn't be, develop, if you like, a will of their own, and that things that we created as our servants become our masters. But how can that happen? I mean, if we program them, can't we program them to always want to work for us rather than for themselves? This turns out to be very difficult. The standard approach at the moment, or at least one of the most common to creating AI systems that can autonomously go out and work out for themselves the best way to achieve something, is called reinforcement learning, which is akin to having it start off taking fairly random actions and then rewarding the cases where it does what we want and punishing the cases where it doesn't. The rewarding and punishing in this case is just setting numbers to be high or low. And these types of systems wouldn't be safe without additional work because they're incentivized, for example, to stay alive, because they could work out that they can't get any reward if they were to be turned off. There'd be no more chance of getting these positives, so that if they're intelligent enough to realize that they shouldn't, say, fall down a hole while trying to fulfill a task, because you wouldn't be able to fulfill the task, then they would also be intelligent enough to be able to work out that you should avoid being shut off by a human, because it will stop you fulfilling the task. So they'd still be trying to fulfill the letter of the types of tasks we set them, but they might not fulfill the spirit of it. That's the kind of concern. And that they might, in fact, become duplicitous, working out that we might want to shut them down and thinking ahead about ways of stopping that. That's right. Nick Bostrom uh, calls this the, the possibility of the treacherous turn, that if a system was smart enough to be able to understand human motivations, and it's hard to really say that it's as smart as a human if it couldn't, then it should be able to work out that we would turn it off if we realized that it had aims which were contrary to our own. And thus, it wouldn't be able to fulfill those aims very well if it were to tell us about them. So that is a concern. And I think that the standard techniques in AI would actually run into problems like this. Stuart Russell, an AI pioneer over in uh, Berkeley, has written extensively on that as well. But there might be solutions to it. For example, if we make it so that the AI systems are explicitly uncertain about what the goal is, then they would have an incentive to ask us what the goal is because they wouldn't want to uh, overpower us and fulfill the wrong goal. So there could be, in some ways, simple tweaks to the standard algorithms which would overcome these problems. But this is still an area where we've got a lot of uncertainty about it. And it's actually the people who are trying to make systems that can be controlled properly by humans who are kind of ringing the alarm bells about this, saying that this may take decades to work out how to properly have systems that are fully within human control if they're autonomous systems. And uh, I do think that there's a lot of danger there. I'm hopeful that we'll solve the problem before we develop systems with those levels of capabilities, but it's by no means a sure thing. Does any part of you think, well, this stuff is so potentially dangerous, we should just try and stop research into it, that there should be a kind of international ban on research in the same way there was an effort to internationally ban chemical weapons? Well, if I were uh, somehow in charge of the entire world's uh, research output on this, I would suggest going quite slow on the capabilities of this general variety and putting the accelerator down when it comes to working out how to control systems better and have them be aligned with human values. When it comes to the real world, this is extremely hard to do. It doesn't look like we're close to any kind of international agreements about going slow on capabilities. And if the countries that are trying to be the most responsible 
slow down their capabilities work, it's not clear that that's going to be helpful overall, as it just increases the chance that it's the less responsible countries that get there first. So it is very tricky when you try to take a, a realist perspective on it. I mean, one of the things that surprised me about the book was that, well, I guess when I opened it, I thought, okay, the stuff he's going to discuss primarily is climate change, which is the thing that gets all the headlines, and maybe nuclear war. And you do discuss those, but you put them relatively low down the kind of scale of concerns. Why is climate change not at the top? Yeah, I, I should be clear, climate change and nuclear war are extremely important concerns. And they're things that I am personally extremely concerned about, in part because they would be utterly devastating even if they fell short of something that would be the end of humanity and the end of human potential over the entire future, there would still you know, be things that could cause hundreds of millions or billions of deaths. You know, absolutely devastating. But when it comes to this question about would they be the end of the human project, it's difficult to see how they would be. And this is in some sense good news that's come out of research in these areas that when it comes to nuclear weapons, the main concern is that an all-out nuclear war could cause a nuclear winter when smoke from burning cities rises so high up that it enters the stratosphere above the clouds and couldn't be rained out and would cool and darken the skies for a period of years. This would cause early frosts, which would uh, destroy crops. So the worry is ultimately starvation. And uh, this has been explored. Uh, Carl Sagan notably talked about it a lot. And he was actually the only uh, researcher on nuclear winter who really thought that it could cause the extinction of humanity. The others nowadays think that it would be utterly devastating and, you know, they're leading the chorus of concern against it. But they think that extinction from this is very unlikely. And this is partly because there'll be places in the world, in New Zealand most famously, that are quite coastal and also in the Southern Hemisphere and somewhat protected from this. And when it comes to climate change, again, some of these possibilities that are discussed would be absolutely devastating and very long-lasting. But it's difficult to see how they would mean that there are no more humans or there's no more possibility of civilization beyond that point. So when you look into the details of this, it's very hard to find any real research from climate scientists that even suggests that extinction is on the cards. However, things could get you know, extremely bad. So, as you say, extremely bad is also worth worrying about alongside extinction. And when we got to the question of, well, what do you do about it, which is more sort of my area of politics, it seemed to me that plausible solutions demand something that is politically implausible, which is a world government. Is there a way short of that to solve these existential risks? I think that there's a lot of work that can be done on existential risks uh, that's both incremental and also revolutionary. So at an incremental level, a lot of people think, you know, what could be done about these things? It's all so big, so far beyond me. You know, a couple of examples for the US, they should restart the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty that they let lapse a year ago. And even more serious, the New START Arms Control Treaty on nuclear weapons is due to expire in February next year. And the current administration plans to let it lapse. Russia would be very happy to have it be signed and renewed. This seems crazy. This would mean that for the first time in more than 50 years, there would be no legal constraints on the amount of nuclear weapons that the two sides could possess. So these are some examples of things that, you know, with the stroke of a pen could be dealt with and are issues where, you know, voters could get engaged about them. There are also many areas of research that could happen within academia to study and understand these threats better. 
And there are examples at the international level where we could strengthen the institutions that we already have. For example, the Biological Weapons Convention is you know, meant to be on a par with the Chemical Weapons Convention and the treaties against nuclear weapons. But its budget at the moment is just $1.4 million per year. And it is the convention that is tasked with protecting us from biological weapons. So there should be multilateral efforts to improve that. But I think we could also go beyond that and set up various forms of institutions and international law to help put existential risk and protecting humanity's potential onto the international agenda as one of the central issues for our time. I think your central academic concern, I mean, obviously you reigned incredibly widely in this book, but you're a, a moral philosopher and ethicist. So I'd like to end by asking you a couple of questions around that. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about radical environmentalists who believe that the preservation of humanity needn't be our highest goal. I mean, and given the number of species we're wiping out and so on, I mean, I don't think many people would argue for the extinction of humanity, but is prioritizing the survival of as many humans as possible necessarily the right way to go? I think prioritizing the survival of humanity is centrally important. That needn't be synonymous with as many humans at any given time as possible. You know, consider concerns about overpopulation. But ultimately, when it comes to the future, I think that it's not that humans are the only source of value, that we're the only thing that is intrinsically good in and of itself. I don't believe that. I think that animal life is substantially good in and of itself. And it may be, given you know, that humans are only a small part of the ecosystem, that there is more good in all of these other parts of the ecosystem put together than there is in humanity, uh, more of value. But humans are the only thing on earth that is uh, responsive to moral reasons, that can think about justice and decide to take actions on account of it. And if we were to go extinct and to fail, then that kind of upwards force would disappear. I think that our potential is extremely vast and may take us far beyond the Earth in the long-term future. We've been around for 2,000 centuries so far, and if we consider that our planet should be habitable for about a billion years to come, and there are actions that humans can take that are almost within our current technological capacity that could extend the lifespan of life on Earth by billions of years more. Ultimately, the end of the biosphere would be caused by the, the steady brightening of the sun. But that's only brightening by a few percent. And uh, all we would need to do is do some kind of geoengineering equivalent to what we're talking about actually with climate change over the coming decades in order to perhaps be able to... Uh, have life continue on Earth far beyond its natural span. So there are kind of projects like this that may well be in our future. And I think that there's so much hope for what we could do if we survive that ultimately I'm not depressed by it, but excited. And I think that people who look at humanity and see bad things that we're doing now and think that the answer is to end it all is akin to someone whose life is going very badly and has lost hope. But the answer in that case, if their life perhaps is worse than nothing, isn't to end it, but is to change what they're doing and to actually start to have a positive impact and to make those decisions. Okay, Toby Ord, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Toby Ord, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. And I want to invite you to the FT Weekend Festival. This year, we've gone digital. Wherever you are in the world, join us on Thursday, September the 3rd through to Saturday, September the 5th for three days of debate about the social, political and economic issues of our time, from post-COVID capitalism and the geopolitics of tech 
to the reinvention of luxury and the future of dining. Visit ftweekend.live.ft.com to find out more and book your passes. All festival sessions will be available on demand to ticket holders after the event. That's ftweekend.live.ft.com. And I hope you'll join me again next week on the Rachman Review. You can find the show in all the usual podcast apps. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.